Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer, and today on The Breakdown, we're sitting down with a Republican district attorney from the Central Valley who's become a champion of criminal justice reforms. That's right, San Joaquin County DA Tori Verber Salazar will be here in a moment. But first, we're going to check in with Laurel Rosenhall. She is a reporter for Cal Matters, and she just took a deep dive into the political endorsements of the California NAACP. Laurel, thanks for uh, taking a few minutes with us. Hey, Laurel. Thanks for having me. So I got to say, I have a little bit of reporter jealousy because I actually wanted to do this story, but you did it first. So <laughs> we just ha- thought we'd have you on the show. Um, Thanks. It's sorry. I don't know what to no, say. No, no, it's good. It's good. It's a great story. So, OK, so let's just go back up and kind of set the stage here. Voters are getting, you know, their ballot guides right now. Um, and they might be a little surprised when they open the state voter guide to see that one of the nation's oldest civil rights groups are opposed to five ballot measures that a lot of other civil rights groups are actually supporting. So talk about like whose side is NAACP on and what ballot measures are we talking about? Well, most notably, um, people are probably seeing ads that feature the NAACP opposing the split role initiative, Prop 15. Um, That's a big one. They're also opposing the rent control initiative. They're opposing the dialysis initiative. And they are also opposing the bail initiative, which means um, they are in the position of wanting to keep the cash bail system. Um, and they are for the exemption for gig gig companies, basically the Uber Lyft ballot measure Prop 22 that would exempt those companies from a controversial labor law that the legislature passed. So the reporting you did, Laurel, looks into the woman uh, who is in, in charge of the NAACP in California and Hawaii, Alice Huffman. Tell us a little bit about her and, you know, this, you know, who is she? Where did she come from? She's a renowned figure in California politics, has been working in Sacramento for about 50 years. Um, She came to California as a young woman and started working in the very first administration of Governor Jerry Brown. She held a couple of positions there. Um, She went on to become a lobbyist for the California Teachers Association. And that was when Willie Brown was the assembly speaker. They became very close. She was really um, heavily involved in developing the political clout that the Teachers Association still enjoys today. And um, and then when she left that, she established her own consulting business probably some 20 or 30 years ago now. So a lot of those issues like the Teachers Association are pushing Prop 15, right? I mean, so what did you find when you started digging into the campaign finance measures about she has her own consulting firm, right, separate from the NAACP? 
Yeah, so she uh, became the president of the California NAACP in 1999. She separately has her own political consulting firm. She does a lot of work on ballot measure campaigns, particularly this year. It was kind of remarkable that she's uh, working on five different campaigns this year. In past years, though, she's also worked on um, against the rent control initiative that was on the ballot you know, two years ago. She's worked on uh, redistricting issues and Indian gaming issues and pharmaceutical ballot measures. Um, she's really had her hand in a lot of ballot, ballot measures over the years and has from time to time faced criticism for having these two different roles where on the one hand, she is being paid as a political consultant to help these campaigns. And often the NAACP endorsement winds up lining up very closely with what her paid position is with those campaigns. I saw her on TV this morning on a on a TV ad uh, against the bail measure against Prop 25, you know, saying it was going to lead to more people of color being locked up longer, which is exactly what the yes side says will not happen. Um, so I'm just wondering, what do you hear from other in your reporting? What do you hear from other either NAACP folks at the local level or from other organizations that advocate on behalf of people of color? So. It's complicated, and I think this year it is especially complicated because as a country, this is an issue that is really front and center in a way that it isn't in, in most election years because we are talking about race. We are talking about a legacy of, of discrimination in our country. And so a lot of political campaigns are using that to frame their messages. Um, so it, you're kind of hearing those themes from both sides in a lot of campaigns. And there are many civil rights groups and even some local NAACP officers who feel like the position of the state NAACP is really not in the best interest of communities of color. So, for example, um, I spoke with Carol Fife, who um, is an officer of the Oakland chapter of the NAACP. And, you know, she's heavily in favor of rent of the rent control measure. She's heavily in favor of split role because she says these are things that are going to help communities of color. Split role would raise property taxes and the, a lot of the money would go towards schools. Um, two thirds of African-American households in California are renters, though. Alice Huffman argues that rent control would actually be bad for renters, but there are many uh, other civil rights groups who say, no, it would help. So I don't know if we said the figure. You have pulled the campaign filings. Her consulting group has made over $1.2 million so far this year from the same ballot measures that then the NAACP turned around and sided with the same groups that are paying her. We're talking real estate interest, dialysis clinics, uh, the bail industry, um, you know, obviously the business industry. With Lyft 15, and Uber. Yeah. Uber and Lyft probably most dramatically. I mean, this makes me feel like as a reporter, I shouldn't mention the NAACP when I'm talking and people are asking me questions about this. I mean, do you feel like this undercuts the endorsements or really the like legitimacy of this storied civil rights organization in California? I think what I realized in doing this story is that endorsements don't all mean the same thing. Um, many endorsements mean that that group has taken, done the research, taken a vote and decided to put their weight behind something. And then in those cases, those groups 
pay money to help support that campaign, whatever that position is, whether it's yes or no. Um, in this case, the money is flowing the other way. And so it does make you wonder what that endorsement means. Now, I should say that Alice Huffman declined to talk to me for this article. I reached out many times and she would not um, set up an interview. I also reached out to five other members of her board and none of them would talk to me either. So I don't have firsthand information on how they make decisions about what they endorse. I know from my research that she's told reporters in the past that she only works on campaigns that the NAACP has already endorsed. But when you look at the timing of some of these payments from these campaigns, they go back to February. It's very unusual for a group to make an endorsement that early in an election year. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get to talk firsthand to anyone at the NAACP, including even the national NAACP office, which I called many, many times, spoke on the phone, asked for an interview, and they never would put anyone on the phone with me. All right. Well, I guess voters are kind of left to figure this out, but I think your reporting is super helpful. Laura Larson Hall of CalMatters, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Miss seeing you. <laughs> take care. Good luck uh, in these final days before the election. All right. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be joined by San Joaquin County DA Tori Verber Salazar. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are thrilled to welcome Tori Verber Salazar. She's the elected district attorney in San Joaquin County and one of the founding members of a new association, the Prosecutors Alliance. Tori, welcome to The Breakdown. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. We're super excited to have you, and we want to get into the new alliance and, and the work you're doing, but we like to go back to the beginning on these things and talk a little bit how folks ended up where they are. You, as we said, are in San Joaquin County. Um, Stockton is obviously the county seat there, and that is a community you have deep roots in. You were raised there, I believe, by in part by your grandmother and, and mother who were um, very involved in the community. I think your grandmother took in a lot of people in need. Tell us about her. Yes, I was born and raised in Stockton, California. I grew up in South Stockton, um, and actually it was my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother. Wow. Um, and uh, um, very strong-willed, uh, dedicated people to the community and tremendous public servants. 
And because of the level of poverty that I lived with as a young child, um, it was a neighborhood effort to keep everybody healthy and well, but was also a neighborhood policing. Um, because if somebody did get out of line off in the neighborhood, um, was its own community court. Mm -hmm. And it, it processed cases in a manner which they felt were appropriate, things that they could handle informally, um, and then those that needed to be more formalized by bringing in law enforcement. And so that uh, there were shared food, shared dinners, shared meals, shared residence, um, because times were tough and people didn't always have the money. Um, and also you're talking, you know, the 70s, a big influence of narcotics came into the community. And so some parents were, were lost on that journey and children were left to be raised by themselves. So people in the neighborhood, all of us, you know, you took in whoever was out there whenever they needed it, as well as fighting for civil rights and, and equality, and in, in particular for women's rights, equal pay and equal justice and equal respect. So uh, they, they were tremendous fighters, uh, you know, tough and did a great job. You uh, have quite a few law enforcement folks in your family. Your dad uh, and your uncle were police officers. I think your great-grandfather was sheriff up in Calaveras <laughs> County. Probably oversaw the frog junk jumping contest on occasion, <laughs> be my guess. It was a pretty uh, wild west back then. So, <laughs> no, we are a long generation of law enforcement. Yeah. Three uncles, father, brother, nephews, you name it, we've got them in our family. Did they all sort of agree, do you think? I mean, nowadays, criminal justice is such a different issue than it was way back when. When, but, you know, did you feel like you at the dinner table or Thanksgiving or whenever y'all got together, did you get, hear different points of view about these things? Absolutely. But I was very fortunate. My um, father was uh, drove the paddy wagon, the old what they called the paddy wagon. And so um, every night there would be a number of individuals in the back of the wagon um, that were probably under the influence of alcohol or whatever the case may be. And he'd bring them in and my grandmother would make a big pot of soup. She'd feed them um, and then he'd go along. Sometimes he wouldn't book them because he said once they get in the criminal justice system, it's very hard to get out um, and they just need to sober up. Sometimes he'd bring them in and say, don't book them, but let them stay in the holding cell so it's warm when the weather was so cold. It's like Mayberry um, RFD. Yeah, but it was, you know, but it resolved a lot of situations that didn't, it, it was a good example of what didn't need criminal justice intervention. And it was a good example of too, that you can make progress because people called him directly you know, they'd call the police departments is way before cell phones. And they would say, you know, send the send the wagon. He needs he needs a couple hours in the wagon. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's interesting because that's kind of some of, the, and, some of the social work aspect we're talking about now. I'm curious. I mean, you started in the district attorney's office that you now lead as I think an intern or receptionist. How old were you? And I mean, did you see yourself at that point going into law enforcement? I think with my family and, and their passion for civil rights and equal rights and for law enforcement, this was the pathway um, that I, I, I knew all along that I would do. And, and I was, you know, my what was so wonderful being raised by such powerful women and men was that they taught me to fight for what is right. Um, and so a, a great pathway is to become a lawyer. <laughs> so <laughs> that was often recommended as a child growing up as a field I should go into. So uh, it was a great opportunity for me um, to, to do that. And having had the background of seeing the amazing and incredible work that law enforcement can do day in and day out to change uh, uh, people's lives and to change this community and to create public safety, but also do so with fairness is a very powerful thing to be, a is, a, is really a privilege to witness as a child. Um, and so I, I know the goodness out there. I know the great work that they're capable of doing. But I also know that when it doesn't happen, there has to be swift justice and it has to be handled. 
and when, I, we have to focus on that. From where you sit and all the things you've seen, both and heard maybe from your family members, like what do you think needs to happen in order to change law enforcement for the better? And, you know, in particular, these police shootings of unarmed young men in particular. You know, I think we have to come to the table. Um, I was out at the protest and I was speaking and I was thanking my community. They really did a great job in raising their voice, but doing it in a manner that, you know, we could all listen and learn. But it's time for everybody to come to the table and to build that better and more collaborative effort. And I think you can't hear the voices when you're standing out there with a riot helmet on and a gun and a baton. I think you have to take those off and you have to sit and listen to the people on the street. They spoke loud and clear that they are extremely frustrated with us and they're disappointed and they're hurt. And they're, I mean, they're really genuinely hurting and we have to do something to help heal and we have to ensure that justice is fair and equal. But it has to be an analysis where both sides have a voice. And I think that's where we're starting to see a pro even a greater problem is that people are shutting down and they're going into camps and they're not communicating. And I think as law enforcement, we have to stop being afraid of change. We have to stop traumatizing our neighborhoods and we have to stop scaring them every time change comes around or criticism comes around. You notice if there's a new bill or a new law that's out there, they immediately go to the old, well, crime will increase, violence will happen. There's absolutely no evidence to support that because we've never done it before. There's no data to support that. And why are we so afraid of change? And why are we not receptive to that change? And by building that wall and saying we will not change and we will not be receiving that information and we will not see your pain has created that distrust. So we really have work to do to break that down. And, and we can only do that when we're in the street, arm in arm with them, not adversarial. And yeah. so we have to do that. So you've butted heads, I think it's fair to say, with some of your colleagues um, in similar positions. You left the statewide California District Attorneys Association in January, essentially saying they've made some serious mistakes um, talking about their reluctance or rather opposition to many of these reforms that voters have embraced. Um, can you talk a little bit about what what pushed you to that point? Because we've seen, I think, historically, even, you know, progressive DAs from places like San Francisco still wanting a seat at the table. And you've clearly felt like it wasn't even worth, you know, showing up for anymore. Absolutely. And you can create tremendous change from within. And I think that's great that people are taking that pathway. I had a personally a bad experience with them and then professionally. And so, you know, I felt that they were, you know, against any change. And I, I understand if you don't believe in this bill or you believe in this law, have a conversation, but don't re-traumatize the community by using scare tactics that more harm or violence will occur or these negative consequences will occur or don't diminish the voice of the voters. When the people voted for these initiatives, going back to AB 109 and 47 and 57 and 64 and everything that was signed yesterday, you know, the first go-to reflex is the voters didn't know what they were doing. I find that very insulting. Mm. Voters are very conscientious and they know what they're doing and they spoke. And most of these initiatives passed in the 60 plus range. So the voters had sent us a message. We want change. It's not working. And instead of leaning into that and saying, okay, sorry, we opposed it. Um, now we hear you. We see you. We're going to make it work. They doubled down and figured out ways to either repeal it, to work around it, to diminish it or to diminish the voter intellect or to, you know, mislead people that if they really knew what the, this ballot bill was about, they wouldn't have voted or this um, proposition was about, they wouldn't have voted for it. I, I don't believe in that. I believe 100% in everybody in my community 
and I know they're intelligent. I know they work hard and I know that they believe in a better way. And so I have to listen to them and I have to learn to do better. And I just felt that there was never any learning opportunity there. It was a negative engagement. And I felt that, you know, we were too closely aligned with other law enforcement agencies to the point where we were representing them and not our people, not the people we serve. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we're talking with San Joaquin County DA Tori Verber Salazar. Um, Tori, I mean, you came up through, as we mentioned, not just law enforcement, but you were a line prosecutor for many years. You prosecuted gang violence. Can you talk about what you're referring to when you th- when you talk about you know this this resistance to change? Because I think that some people would say, well, you know, if, if if somebody murdered somebody, they should go to prison. Like, can you talk about the difference in what we're talking about here? Yeah, it's it's different conversations. And that's a great point. I was a homicide gang prosecutor and very tough on crime and very tough. Um, and because people were taking other people's lives and causing tremendous community harm, we have had struggled with a high rate of homicides. And we were able to push that down over the last decade by about 25 percent. And in one year alone, we reduced it by 40 percent. But now we've got COVID and we're back up. We're, our numbers are going to come back up across the nation. You're seeing gun violence going up. Um, and so we. Why do you, you know, think that been, is? Like how what, what you said COVID. You know, I, I think a lot of it is frustration, uh, fear, anxiety. Um, a lot of people are at home and not working in the traditional sense. Um, and then I think the distrust um, and it's just created that perfect storm of every, but everything coming together and the stress factors. Um, it has, you know, I was just on a call a couple hours for uh, across the nation and everybody is seeing it. <sighs> everybody is seeing a spike in, in gun violence and in homicides across the nation. And, you know, we, it's hard to do data analysis and research on COVID because we've never had a year like this. Um, so I think at the end of the year, we'll probably sit down and be able to have a better conversation and strategize about how and why this happened and what we could do better next time. Coming back to the resistance from within the DA association, like, what is it when you, like, get right to the core of it? You know, what is it? Because, you know, the president of that organization is from Alameda County, Nancy O'Malley. You know, it's a pretty liberal county. I mean, what is it, bottom line, that they're so resistant to or afraid of or, you know, why is it so entrenched? You know, I think it's the way we were raised. You know, when I started off and first started attending CDA trainings, it was that very cult, much the culture. You hammered away, you got the most number you could out of a case. And if you didn't, you were light on crime, you were a weak DA and you shouldn't be in the criminal justice system. So there was very much internal pressure. I just had a, t- a team meeting with my misdemeanor team and I talked to them that if you didn't take certain cases to the mat and if you didn't take a guilty, you got just demoralized, you know, and, uh, and your career would be altered. Um, and so there's a whole generation of NDAs that grew up with that culture. Um, and that's really what's nice about the Alliance is it's breaking that culture. Giving you guess my next question, Tori. Tell <laughs> us about the Alliance. Who are you and what are you guys doing? Well, I know it's hard to think that, a, you know, a Republican from an ag community in the Central Valley is going to be sitting here with these, you know, three uh, big city, uh, if you will. The San uh, Francisco socialists. You can call them liberals. <laughs> it's OK. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, but what's so wonderful about each one of them is they welcome me to the table, even though there's times where I say, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, that's too far for me. I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not going there. Um, And there's times when they say to me the same thing, but I'm always welcome there. And the opportunity is to learn and to grow and then to make an informed decision 
Whereas I felt before it was more directed. You do it this way or you're, you know, or not. This one is very organic and we look at it and we, we analyze, we spend time talking to each other, debating these issues, um, talking about, you know, other programs that might be better or, you know, affect more effective in reducing crime. Um, and so we look at that and then we come to a conclusion as to what we see as viable and what we don't. We also wanted to create a, a voice because we're seeing in organizations like CDA more people raising their voice. But when the end product comes out and you saw the bills that were signed, most were opposed by them and not all, but most. And um, and so your voice, there wasn't a place for that voice. The voice still was oppose, oppose instead of opportunity. And the Alliance is just an opportunity. How big is it? I mean, who else is part of it besides you and a couple of DAs? It just, we just started, it's just the four of us, but um, people have reached out across the nation um, wanting to either form an Alliance with us or form their own um, within their uh, within their their states because there just hasn't been that opportunity. It's one organization and then you get groupthink and then that's what dominates. So and, we should say uh, this is you, the Contra Costa DA, Diana Becton, San Francisco DA, Chase Boudin, and George Gascon, former DA in San Francisco, who's challenging the LA district attorney right now. Exactly. Um, okay. So what are you guys speaking out against right now? I mean, there's a couple ballot measures that deal with criminal justice. Are you involved in those? Yeah, we were working with the um, governor's office and legislators these last few weeks on, on bills that we felt would really help um, in the criminal justice system and some of those tools and resources. Because the goal is always, first and foremost, is the safety um, and then the savings. You know, I'm always, I'm a fiscal conservative. I'm always looking at the economic impact. I, I'm in a community that has high crime, also has high poverty. 25% of my population cannot, uh, you know, lives at or near the poverty level. Another 15% cannot sustain a $400 medical emergency. So with that comes a higher percentage of homelessness. Um, and when and I'm in the camps in the evening volunteering, and we see a lot of the people were driven into the camps because of the excessive fines and fees that occur in the criminal justice system. Mm. So you, when I first came in DA, I didn't really understand the full impact that I have on the economy of my community, the wellness of my community, healing my community, and its image throughout, you know? And so as DAs, I think we really need to expand that and have those conversations. So we're really looking at those opportunities to increase safety, to ensure health and wellness, help with recovery, um, make sure our victims are strong and well, and then make sure our actions are not are appropriate for what has occurred, but not so punitive that it drives people into homelessness for crimes that are very low level um, and, and not necessary. Tori, we're short on time, but I do want to ask you about uh, the 2020 presidential election. We've got the president making law and order and tough on crime, really part of his message. And then you've got Kamala Harris, a former DA, former attorney general in California, the, who you know portrayed herself as a progressive prosecutor. What do you make of the you know that race? I mean, you're a Republican. Have you made an endorsement? And you know what difference would it make to have somebody like Kamala Harris as VP? I think it's wonderful because. This is the one area Democrats and Republicans agree. I mean, President Trump in the middle of the National Convention pardoned a very serious felon, you know, uh, did a lot. Um, and you've never seen that before on national television, pardoning people and granting clemency and things like of this nature and bringing that dialogue into the conversation as well as the first step back. So criminal justice reform is a very Republican issue. And it, it is, it, we talk about this a great deal because it's a system that hasn't been effective and efficient and it's very costly and expensive. And then we just keep repeating it and expecting a different result. 
And the consequence is just limited resources to do the good work that we need to do. And there's nothing more frustrating as, as a fiscal conservative Republican from the Valley is that if we send somebody to prison and they come back and they're worse, and what have we done? Created another victim. We create another harm. It is the best victim tool we can have is to make sure that you don't come in, but if you do come in, that we return you back to society as a better person and less likely to cause harm. That is one of the best victim prevention tools we can have. What about so Kamala Harris? You, Kamala Harris, I think <laughs> she's out, I think she's amazing. I think she's outstanding. And I know that she takes some pushback that she wasn't progressive, but you have to understand this is these are steps by step, you know, mm-hmm. and she was the first. She was up there, I met with her, seen her in action. She was the first one opening this door and she took it. She was methodical in her approach and she created that pathway for people like me to run through the door. All right, quickly, just a few seconds left. But um, I'm curious, we talked at the top about the bail reform measure. There's another ballot measure that rolls back some of the reforms. Where are you on Prop 20 and Prop 25? Prop 20, I, I don't agree with. I think that's a no because it's repealing 47 and 57 and it's eliminating rehabilitative opportunities. And this whole conversation, this whole dialogue this summer is that we need to address issues more appropriately. That includes case managers, social workers, clinicians responding to crimes, to calls for help, excuse me, and and providing that service instead of engaging him in the criminal justice system. What Prop 20 does is say, we're gonna go back to the old way. We know it wasn't successful. The data proves it's not successful. Research shows it's unsuccessful. But if we just do it again, this time we'll get it right. That doesn't logically make sense. We cannot roll back what we did and go back to a program that didn't work to begin with. All right, we're going to have to leave it there, Tori. I am sorry, but we appreciate your time so much. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. Thank you guys. Have a great day. You too. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Jim Bennett and our producer is Guy Marzarati. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin, Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.